0: Okay, everyone, let's open our Bibles together. Today we're going to Mark chapter 9, and we will begin here in just a moment in verse 38. Mark chapter 9, verse 38. My wife and I were on vacation last week. I want to thank Nick Scott for preaching so capably and so effectively for me, Uh, and thank you, our congregation, for allowing us a week off. Uh, It was a blessing. I don't know what you guys did to the thermostat outside when we came back. We went to Florida, and we came back. It was like 40 degrees colder. So something happened, but this is the time of year. So we're, we're, we're blessed to have been able to do that, though. As we think about our topic today, have, I wonder how many of you have come to some of our upward basketball games that we have here at the church Uh, Many of you probably haven't seen one of these if you don't have a kid or a grandkid in the league. It's not too long now and we'll be starting those up again. Uh, But when you watch little kids play basketball, sometimes it's hilarious. You know, sometimes it's adorable. You've got, you know, girls that, that are doing cartwheels down the court as other people are dribbling. Uh, you've got kids that are, that are, are falling into one another. They're, they're throwing the ball up to the hoop as best they can, and then when one of them finally scores a bucket, the crowd just goes wild. It's great. It's wonderful. It's really sweet. But every now and then, as often happens with kids' basketball, and sometimes even with professional basketball, two teammates... On, on the same team will grab the ball at the same time. Grab the ball at the same time. Maybe it's a rebound. They're, they're fighting for the ball. They're, they're tugging at it. They're trying to get it, and they're on the same team. Now, I don't know what the exact rule is on this, but I grew up playing basketball, and so usually if two teammates hold on to the ball for too long, it's a turnover, some kind of travel or something like that. And so we were taught... That when, when your team is grabbing the ball, and let's say I've got two teammates going for a rebound at the same time, we were taught to yell at them, same team, same team, right, to, to get one of them to, to let go. Because sometimes they don't realize they're not fighting for the ball with an opposing player, they're fighting for the ball with someone on their own team. This will happen not only in little kids basketball, it happened in the NBA. Now this past season in the NBA, I saw something that you rarely see, and it's not something that you want to see. The Minnesota Timberwolves called a timeout during a game, and as the players went to the bench, an argument ensued, and then one of the Timberwolves players punched his teammate over there in front of the bench, just punched him right in the middle of the game. It was super intense, and it was super sad. How sad it is when when players on the same team are arguing with one another and even fighting with one another and they can't pull it together to focus their energies against the team on the other side. How many teams have failed to accomplish their goals because their players simply couldn't get along with one another? Same team. Well, today we're going to see that spirit, that same spirit of rivalry if you will, within the group of Jesus's disciples and I think you're also going to see that, that that's not the only place where we find it. We find that same heart, that same spirit in each one of us if we are not careful. Let me show you what I mean in our text. It's Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 38. This is God's word. Mark writes, John said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You saw last week in our text from Mark, and you will see again in chapter 10 as we move toward it, that within the group of the apostles is a spirit of rivalry. Within their group is a spirit of rivalry. They have it in their hearts and Jesus is consistently working to rid them of it. They care a lot about who is the greatest among them. Which one of them is the greatest? They care a lot about that. You see it last week, you'll see it again in chapter 10. And so sometimes this spirit of rivalry is within the group, but sometimes it's not them against each other. Sometimes it's their group versus all of the other people on the outside. It's, it's us versus everyone else who is an outsider You can see this in the way that they sometimes speak of Samaritans, a group that Jews had a healthy disdain for. And now we have this person in our text casting out demons, and they are crying out, He's not one of us. He's not one of us. He's not in our group. And so I want to take this text as a warning to each one of us today. Some texts are there in the Bible to encourage us. Some are there to challenge us. Some are there to admonish or warn us. This is one of the latter. And so I want to take away a few warnings from our text today. I want you to take away a few warnings. Number one, beware the temptation to become territorial. Beware the temptation to become territorial. Look at verse 38. They said, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. We tried to stop him from doing that. Now remember, earlier in the book of Mark, Jesus gave the apostles the authority and the power to drive out demons. Do you remember that? He gave that authority and that power to the apostles. And now they don't want anyone else to have that authority. Now, no doubt when that first happened, when Jesus first gave them that power and that authority, they would have considered it amazing. They would have thought it's such an amazing privilege. They they, they would have been thinking, you mean us. You're going to let us do this. You're going to give us the the power to do what you've been doing? We thought only you could do that. We're going to do it? And then they, they went out and they actually did it. And for a time, no doubt, they would have been totally shocked, totally surprised, completely humbled that Jesus would grant this power and this authority to them. That he would let them do this. And now they have started to view it as something that sets them apart from others. They have started to think this is our gift. This shows that we are the favored ones. No one else should have this ability. No one else should be doing this ministry. This is ours. Oh, How, how quickly things can shift like that even in our own hearts. How does this work for us today? Well, I'd venture to say not many of you are going around driving demons out of people or seeing other people do the same. But we can have this same kind of heart, this same kind of territorial mindset when it comes to the work that we do for the Lord. They shouldn't be doing that. That's my area. That's my job. that That's what... I'm supposed to be doing. What's the heart behind that, brothers and sisters? What's the heart behind that feeling? It's this. If I'm not able to be in charge of that, if I'm not the one that everyone else sees doing that, I will lose status in their eyes. I won't be as important. I won't be needed. And I can't have that i can't let go of this because i need to be recognized by others in this way friends we are all susceptible to this i am susceptible to this and so are each and every one of you this territorial heart that doesn't want anyone else to do what we can do because we want to be seen as doing it it can it can be dressed up in holy language we're doing things for the Lord. This is my ministry for the Lord. And yet we, come, we become territorial. Brothers and sisters, beware the human desire for your own glory. This is not just something within the group of the apostles. It's not just something that happened in those days. This is a human nature problem. And so we've got to see in every single one of our hearts that we too have the capability of doing this if we are not careful. Beware the desire for your own glory. Listen to Jesus' words to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 44, where he says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Glory there really just means approval. Jesus is saying, How can you believe When you are constantly seeking approval from others and not seeking approval from God. What he's saying is if our lives are characterized by seeking approval from others all the time and we are never seeking approval from the Lord, we're not believers. You can't believe if you do that. Those things are are diametrically opposed to one another. They cannot coexist. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says. And so is your master other people or is your master God himself? That's really the question that Jesus is posing to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the classic example of this. Religious politicians pontificating and grandstanding for other people seeking glory, seeking approval, seeking status from others and not seeking it from God himself. John the Baptist is our example of the exact opposite. Because when John the Baptist began his ministry and it started growing, all of a sudden Jesus shows up and he points people to Jesus. And some of John's disciples in the early chapters of John, they they go to Jesus. They leave John's ministry and they go to follow Jesus. And John says, this is what I want. You would expect him to to get upset, to to be jealous. No, he says, this is what I want. This is what I am here for. And he says in John 3.30, he must increase, I must what? I must decrease. I must decrease. He must increase. God wants us to be cultivating hearts that rejoice when his kingdom advances no matter who gets the credit hearts that rejoice when the kingdom of God advances no matter who gets the credit because we care not about ourselves but about God, about his glory and about his kingdom. Psalm 115 verse 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Not to us. Not to us. If you remember, the Apostle Paul had his heart in the right place when he wrote to the Philippians. He wrote his letter to the church in Philippi from prison. He's in prison for the gospel. And he writes to the Philippians and he has heard in chapter 1, he has heard that some people are out there preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, trying to discredit Paul and afflict him in his imprisonment. They're out there preaching Christ for wrong motives, envy, rivalry. They just want to hurt Paul. And Paul says, No matter, for they are preaching Christ, and in that I will rejoice. Notice what Paul is saying there. He's saying, It doesn't matter what it does to me, it doesn't matter how it hurts me or my reputation. I am nothing. Christ is preached, and in that I will rejoice. And so this text is a warning to us, brothers and sisters. Beware this temptation that exists in every single one of our hearts to become territorial about our work for the Lord. Territorial in that we don't want anybody else doing what what we have come to find our identity in. We don't want anyone else to come in on our turf. Brothers and sisters, there is no turf in God's kingdom for any one of us. No one has their own turf in God's kingdom. Every square inch is the Lord's. Every square inch is the Lord's. This is about God's glory and God's kingdom advancing, not you and your glory and your little kingdom. So beware that temptation. Second warning here, beware the temptation to become tribal. Not just territorial, but tribal. Look at verse 38. Let me show you what I mean by tribal. Verse 38 again, he said that John says to Jesus, we, we tried to stop this man, but why? Because he wasn't following us. He wasn't with us. He was not in our group. The apostles didn't want this man doing this ministry because he wasn't with them. Friends, this is one of Satan's favorite schemes. To get Christians to divide from one another. To get Christians distracted from the work of making disciples. He gets us to look down upon those who aren't in our group or in our tribe. And to become prideful about the fact that we are in this particular tribe. That's exactly what Satan wants. Satan would love nothing more than if we got together every single Sunday... And spent most of our time talking about how all those other churches out there are doing it wrong. Satan would be fine with that. Why? We're distracted from our our main purpose. We're distracted from our true enemy. We can sit here every Sunday and say, good thing we're not like all those fake churches out there. We're a true church. Good thing we're doing things right. Not like all those churches out there are doing them wrong. I can't believe all of these Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Nazarenes and churches of Christ. And before you know it, you find that your identity as a church comes not from what you're for, but what you're against. It comes not from from what you're about, but what you're not. Your identity in Christ is no longer what you believe and what you promote and what you do. It's what what you don't do, and you take pride in that. Your bread and butter becomes talking bad about all these other Christians who have compromised because they're not as committed as, as we are. And pretty soon, without even knowing it, without even knowing it, you become the Pharisee in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, who prayed to God and arrogantly said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Oh, brothers and sisters, how many of us have become that Pharisee at moments in our lives without even realizing it, without even thinking in those terms. You see what Satan has done when this happens to a, a church. He's gotten us to fight amongst ourselves. Meanwhile, the the world is literally going to hell. The world out there is literally going to hell, and and we just come in and fight amongst ourselves. All we can do is talk about how other Christians have gotten it wrong. Ephesians chapter 6 is that, that passage that Paul writes about the armor of God, that beloved passage. And in that passage, he tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our true enemy is not other people. And heaven forbid, it's not other Christians. Our true enemy is Satan himself and the evil forces of this world. Satan is trying to get us to fight amongst ourselves. Now, yet again, this temptation comes up within every single one of us. Every single one of us needs this warning. This past week on vacation, Jennifer and I were able to attend church on Sunday in in Florida. And we attended a Presbyterian church. A small Presbyterian church in Destin, Florida, and we were very blessed by the service, very blessed the The minister led us in prayer we, we sang good, solid biblical songs. There was not very much instrumentation. The people sang out with everything they had to the Lord. It was beautiful. He preached from a few chapters in Romans eight, proclaimed the Word to us, and we we took the lord's Supper together and then it was over, and and they actually asked us to stay for a meal afterward. And after the service, I wanted to to give the the minister some encouragement. I wanted to encourage him that we had been blessed by that service. So I walked up to him, and I, I just I just really wanted him to, to to understand how much of a blessing that was to us. But even as I was saying it, as I was. Saying what a blessing you all have been to us. We're not even from a Presbyterian church. We're 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 from a Christian church. The the unity here that we're trying to promote, even as I was doing that, I started to mention things like, I'm so glad you're you're not a church like some of these other churches that I've been to. I'm really glad that you're a church that does things this way and not this way. Right? Even as I was doing that, that it was coming up within me, right? This this tribalism coming up within me it's it's a temptation for every single one of us when we do this we become distracted from the great commission to go and make disciples and to help people be reconciled to God look at what Jesus says in verse 40 verse 40 this is the the genius of Jesus it's very simple It's something that that we could never forget. For the one who is not against us is for us. Whoever is not against us is for us, is with us. And so, brothers and sisters, let's praise God for the work that others are doing in Jesus' name, even if it's not exactly the way we would do it. Let's praise God for them. There There is a reason why, Regularly, we spend time praying for other churches in this community. And I'm not talking about praying for our sister Christian churches either. I'm talking about other churches that are of different fellowships than ours. There's a reason why we pray for those churches by name regularly. And, and it is, it, it's because they need our prayers. It's because we should be praying for them. But it's also because when, when we pray for those churches, I hope that it, it, it shows us that we are not all about this idea that we're the only true church around. We don't believe that. We don't believe that there's a bunch of other churches doing things wrongly, and, and there's a bunch of other churches that are just fake churches, and we're the only real one, and everybody needs to leave those churches to come to our church. We do not believe that. right? My first instinct, if someone leaves another church to come to our church, if that is a, a gospel preaching bible believing church my first instinct is to tell them you might want to go back to your church and try to make it work because we're not perfect either you're going to find something here you don't like i bet but my first instinct is to send them back not to 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 just steal the sheep from someone else because we are not the only true church around we rejoice when god works through other churches We rejoice when God increases their attendance and their numbers and their membership. And we will rejoice if God sends revival to the church down the street and not to ours. You guys remember when the the Asbury revival was happening at Asbury College? It's not in our fellowship. It's not a college that we support with our missions budget Could you rejoice when that happened? Or was there a bit of tribalism coming up? Like, that that should be happening with us, not with them. That should be happening here, not there. Now, here's an important clarification in all of this. we, We need to clarify in this way. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying it doesn't matter what you teach. As long as you love people, doctrine doesn't matter. That is not what Jesus is saying here. That is what some would have you believe. That's not what he is saying. There must be lines that we cannot cross. There must be. Christianity, by its very definition, is an exclusive religion. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. There are the saved and the lost Jesus is not saying it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter what you teach. Unity in the church must be a unity around the truth of God's word. We cannot and we will not, we must not teach that some of God's commands can be ignored or reinterpreted to better fit modern sensibilities. There are lines we cannot cross. And just in case you're wondering specifics... If we begin to teach that homosexual relationships or transgenderism are fine and good in the eyes of the Lord, we have crossed a line that we cannot, we must not cross. We've gone from a sincere desire to submit to God's word and perhaps we, we have different interpretations of it to now allowing our culture and our sinful flesh to set the agenda in how we read the Bible and how we interpret it and how we live as Christians. You see the difference there, right? There's a, a big difference between Christians all over the place reading the same word, genuinely wanting to submit to it as, as the rule for our lives, as God's authoritative word over us. over us, and we come to different interpretations. There's a difference between that and saying, no, I'm, I'm going to let culture, I'm going to let the desires of my sinful flesh determine how I interpret this thing. Determine which commands I give priority to and which ones I try to push aside or I try to not think about, not talk about. And determine how I live as a Christian or how we organize our churches. There's a big difference between those two things. I can point you to all kinds of brothers and sisters in Christ... That we have who go to different kinds of churches than ours, who are sincerely seeking to submit to God's word and letting God's word set the agenda for how they live. And we, we differ in interpretation of God's word. But the issues of homosexuality and transgenderism in our day, they are not about whether you are in this or that theological tribe. That is not what it's about. What it's about is what you think about this. That's what it's about. And that's a major difference between being tribal. Do you you see God's word as authoritative, standing over you? Or do you see this as something that has a mistake here and there? It's true for one time period but not another. Does it actually mean something different than what it says Do we stand over it and use it for our own purposes? There's a vast difference between those two things. And so do not give me this nonsense that Jesus is essentially saying here that it doesn't matter what you believe or what you teach. That is not even close to the problem being addressed in the passage. But beware, brothers and sisters, the temptation that we all have to become tribal to think it's us versus them and to be distracted from our true enemy and our true task. Finally, and this one will be briefer than the the first two, beware the temptation to become judgmental. Beware the temptation to become judgmental. To start to think that every church and every Christian besides ours must be in the wrong. Brothers and sisters, every church Every Christian will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In Romans 14, verse 4, Paul writes, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Essentially, what Paul is saying there is you worry about yourself and you let them and their relationship to the Lord be between them and the Lord. You worry about yourself. It is not our place to judge the effectiveness of someone else's ministry. It is not our place to judge another church's or another group's strategy or their focus or their priorities in ministry. Look at verse 41 of our text, the last verse in our text. Jesus says to the disciples, "'Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward.'" And if we want to be judgmental, we might think, a cup of water, what's that going to do? You've got a ministry of giving people cups of water? That's not really doing anything. They're not really focused on the gospel. They're not really making disciples. That's not making much of a difference. It's a cup of water. And Jesus says, no, they, they, won't, they won't lose their reward. It is not our place to judge Let me read to you Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. These will be on the the screen behind me. Verse 1, you might have heard before. Matthew 7, 1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now just leave that verse right up there on the the screen, guys. How many times have you heard that verse quoted out of context? How many times have you heard that verse quoted in this way? Oh, you just called me out for sinning? Judge not. Judge not. Don't judge me. You can't judge me. Judge not. You can't tell me I'm in sin. That is not even close to what this verse is about. That's not what this verse is about at all. We, we have the responsibility, brothers and sisters, to call one another out when we are in sin. In love. To speak the truth in love. We have the responsibility, brothers and sisters, if one of us begins to walk away from the Lord or begins to live in a a sin that could endanger their salvation, to point it out to them because we care about them, because we care about one another. And if we respond, do not judge, that's that's not at all what this text means. Let me read to you the rest of the passage. Jesus says, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Francis Schaeffer once had a, a classic illustration on this very idea right here said, picture your life as if, as if your whole life you've had it, this invisible tape recorder, or maybe I should say sound recorder. What in the world's a tape recorder anymore, right? You've had this invisible sound recorder around your neck, and you didn't know it your whole life. But it only recorded one thing. It recorded every time you held someone else to a standard. Every time you made a statement about a standard that you held other people to, it recorded it. You stand before the judgment seat of Christ at the end, and he, he reveals, oh, you've had this, this recorder around your neck this whole time. He just takes it and he presses play. And every time that you held anyone to a standard is played before you, and then God judges you based on that standard. How would you do? How would you do? Every single one of us would, would flunk that. Every single one of us would get an F, right? Praise the Lord for his mercy and his grace Look at verse 3, Matthew 7, 3. This is where Jesus goes into, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? This is directly related to do not judge. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly To take the speck out of your brother's eye. Brothers and sisters, we will all stand before our master to be judged. And God will take care of judging others. God will take care of judging everyone else. You worry about yourself. What will he say to you when you stand before him? I end with this. Part of the reason that Jesus died was to unite Christians together. We are a Christian church, and that, that doesn't only mean we're a church made up of Christians, but it also means we, we come from a heritage, a history of what we call the Restoration Movement. The Restoration Movement was really born out of the late 1700s and early 1800s when people started seeing that there were all of these divisions among Christians, especially in America. There were so many denominations. And there, were, there, were, there became so many that church names started to be so long that, that they had to describe all the ways that they were not like all the other churches. And your church name ended up being seven or eight words long so that you could describe what kind of Christian you were instead of just being a Christian. And so it was a movement that, whether or not it has succeeded, it was a movement that, that began to try to unite Christians as just Christians. Let's just be Christians. For, forget about all the, the denominational differences. Let's just follow Christ. And let's have unity around the things that we must have unity around. And then those things that, that are differences in interpretation, let's give grace to each other on those. That's where the restoration movement started. And I think there's a real, there's a real strong resonance that that message has with people today. Because many people look at the church and say, why should I become a Christian? Y'all can't even agree with one another on what you believe, right? But one of the, the reasons that Christ died was to unite us together. This is a gospel issue, the unity of Christians. I'll show it to you from Jesus' final prayer. In the upper room, the night before he would die, the last real moments that Jesus was spending with his disciples, he said a long prayer for them in John 17. And you get the sense that he said this out loud so that they could hear the prayer as he was praying it to the Father. And in that prayer, he says this, John 17, verse 20. He says, speaking to the Father, I do not ask for these only, and he means the the apostles right there with them, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, and then watch this last part, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you hear the implication of that last phrase? Jesus prays that we might all be one. Why? So that the world would believe that God has sent Jesus. The the unity of Christians is part of what is going to make the world accept the truth of the gospel. When we are united with one another, not just with one another here in this church, with Christians in the, the, the body of Christ universal, when we are united with one another, that's when the world looks in and sees, oh, Jesus must really be who he said he was. He must really be the way to God. He must really be the only one who can save me from my sins. Why? Because I see the way that Christians are united to one another. In the rest of the world, we don't see that. You don't see that in the rest of the world. You see it in Christianity. And so Jesus died for this, brothers and sisters. This is not just some ancillary suggestion to tack on to the the end of your sanctification in this Christian life. It's a gospel issue the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ, not only in the same church, but across denominational, tribal, if you will, lines. May we be a church that is known, not for necessarily how right we are on everything, not for for how we've got things the right way, may we be a church that is known for being for other believers and for other Christians and for other churches, encouraging them, supporting them, asking them. Here's a practical way how you can do this. Asking people that we know in other churches, how can we pray for you and your church? And I'm here to tell you, if you go and ask your friends that, hey, you go to a different church than me, how can we pray for you? If you go do that, come back to me, tell them, tell me what they said, and we'll pray for them. We will pray for them. Part of what we do on Sunday nights regularly is praying for other churches here in the community. And we'd love to know how we can best pray for them, practically, how they want to be prayed for. It'd be a wonderful, practical way to just apply this as you go out and live your lives this week. And so remember, unity in Christ. It's a a gospel issue. Jesus shed his blood for this. And so right now, I want to take some time, as we do each week, to pray to God and to respond to what he has laid on our hearts might be very different for you than it is for me, than it is for the the person sitting next to you. And so we give this time of silent individual prayer for all of us to respond to the Lord and for all of us to respond to, to, to what he has said to us. God has spoken to you, now you speak to him. And after we speak to him for a few moments, we'll come back and we'll have an invitation time where anyone who needs to respond to God's word in a public way can do so. Let's pray.